0: to live in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Man, as always, it is great to be with y'all today and see your lovely faces. Man, I love that y'all smile even when it's soggy and sloppy outside. It's good to see you. It's great to have some of you joining us online as well. we got people from all over the U.S. who jump online with us each week. So we love you and we're glad that you are with us in that capacity. And it's just great to worship together today and witness great things like Chase and his grandma Vicky. Uh, what a beautiful thing. Uh, And I love that we get that beauty here because we know things are heating up in our culture. It's an election year, and I would not classify political conversations as beautiful. (laughs) And so I love the beauty of a baptism that gives us some joy when we see the disruption of politics. And we know that like every election, this one will be no different. One of the Areas that's always contentious and just problematic is the conversation about the economy. Well, what to do about the economy? Uh, how to fix it, how to improve it, how to spin it, who to help, how to help them? And Americans, we don't generally think very highly of how the government handles our money, do we? But it might surprise you to know that even some high-ranking politicians don't think very highly of how the government handles the money. In fact, some of our presidents have been known for that. One president in particular, Harry Truman, used to get pretty frustrated because he would invite a council of economic advisors into the Oval Office and he would seek their advice on what to do for the nation's economy. And time and time again, they would say, Well, Mr. President, on one hand, you could do this. And then a while later, they'd say, but on the other hand, you could do that. And finally, President Truman had had enough at one of these times, and he just looked at his staff and he said, can somebody find me just a one-handed economist and we can move forward, right? And that's maybe how you feel about things, but we know that the economy and the economics, the study of production and consumption has so many variables to it, and When we look at the variables across the nation and then in states and even within a state, there are so many variables, and all those variables become mind-boggling, and then it leads to a variety of different philosophies and approaches and structures for how to handle the economy. But back in Jesus' day, things were a little bit simpler. Back in Jesus' day, the Romans had conquered other people, and the Romans were in charge. And the Romans had the military, they had the power, and they had the money. To be more specific, the Romans had your money. (laughs) If you were part of the Roman Empire, they had conquered you, and they would take what you had and then rent it back to you or give it back to you. And so the emperor lived large, as did most of the other power politicians, as did most of the privileged military elite. And the people they conquered, they did not live large. They lived mostly poor. They were taxed heavily to fund the empire. Now, even with the people groups that got conquered, like the Israelites, there were always groups among them who buddied up to the conquering class, who became tax collectors for the Romans, who were the religious elite, who learned how to play the game and play the system, and they did all right within that system. But most people, most people were poor, most people were disadvantaged, there was no middle class, and so most people lived pretty simple lives without much financial security. And it was to those people, the lowly, the down and outers, the average Joe who didn't have much, it was to those people who Jesus was speaking when he gave his famous sermon on the mount. We're in a series called The Blessed Life, where we're listening in to Jesus' wisdom at the beginning of his famous sermon on the mount, listening into what he offered us at the beginning of that sermon with what is called the Beatitudes or the Blessing Statements. Listening into the wisdom that Jesus offered us for how to receive the blessings that God wants to give to us. Jesus began his sermon with these three blessings. Next slide, there we go. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for you will receive comfort. Now, the poor in spirit, they recognize their spiritual poverty before God. They have a desperate need for God, and they're aware of that. The mourners, they mourn over their sin. And they grieve their sin so they are comforted by God. And then he said this, blessed are the meek, for you will inherit the land. Blessed are the meek, you'll inherit the land. And this word inherit is a pretty profound word for Jesus to use speaking to the people he was speaking to. Because most of the people in the crowd that day didn't stand to inherit much from an earthly perspective. In fact, in their culture, if you were to have land, it was the oldest son who would get a double portion of whatever the father had left to the children. The other sons would then get smaller portions. And if you were the daughter, well, sorry, gals, you wouldn't get much, if anything. That's just the way their culture was. That's not God saying that's the way it should be. That's just the way things had become for them. And most people did not have pension plans or savings accounts. They did not have 401Ks and retirement plans. In fact, they didn't have much at all. So if there was anything that you were to stand to inherit, it likely was not land or many possessions. There might be a few small family possessions that meant something special to you, and that's what would be passed along. So for Jesus to say that you will inherit the land... That would have perked up the ears of all his listeners. Because these people didn't have some rich uncle they were counting on to leave them a surprise blessing. These people didn't have much at all. In fact, these people, if they owned land, they were the rare exception. When the Romans had conquered the Israelites, the Romans took the land from them and then allowed them to stay on that land If they were renting it. So they basically were purchasing their land back from the Romans at exorbitant rates. At high taxation. And there was no middle class. These people were the poor. And they were living subsistence lives. Hand to mouth. Day to day. Just trying to get by. That was the average Israelite. So for Jesus to speak of an inheritance to people who mostly had little earthly inheritance to look forward to. That was a radical statement for him to make. A big deal. You will inherit the land. I mean, this concept of inheritance was a promise of provision. It was a promise for possession. That they would actually own something again. Now remember, the Sermon on the Mount is all about kingdom living. All about the kingdom of God and Jesus as the King. So the land that Jesus speaks of when he says you will inherit the land was the kingdom land. He's talking here about the kingdom. He's always talking about the kingdom when we read the book of Matthew. And so this land that he speaks of is kingdom land. You'll inherit kingdom land. What a beautiful promise that Jesus makes to people. I mean, think of their situation. These were people who knew what a king was like, who knew what an emperor was like. And the king and the emperor they were familiar with were the ones who took their land and then charged them rent to stand on what had been theirs previously. And Jesus says, no, no, no. There's a different kind of king. A king who owns land and will freely give it to you. A king who will give you his kingdom land. What an incredible juxtaposition of what they were already experiencing. What an incredible promise. What a radical promise of provision to people who had virtually nothing to have. People who had little to inherit. So this language of land and inheriting the land was language that is best understood in the framework of the entirety of Scripture. If we go way back in the story, To a guy named Abraham, who God then gave the name Abraham. And God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. And he promised this land. And from that point on, we see that land is one of the promises and themes throughout Scripture. It's a key element of understanding the Old Testament and even into the New. Well, eventually, God's people had lost land. And they had been taken prisoner by the Egyptians. They had become slaves under the Egyptian empire. And God raised up an unlikely guy who said, God, I I stutter a bit and I don't speak well in front of other people. And God said, then you're the perfect person for me to display my power. Now go tell Moses to let my people, Sorry, it was Moses, says, Moses, you go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So Moses somewhat reluctantly went to Pharaoh and Pharaoh wasn't buying it. But 10 plagues later, after the final plague of death, the Pharaoh relented and let God's people go. And so Moses was leading those people from Egypt towards a new land that God said he would give them. Well, they came up against the Red Sea. And at that point, Pharaoh had changed his mind. And instead of relenting from what he'd done to the Israelites, he now wanted revenge on them. And so he gathered his troops and his army, and they were chasing the Israelites. And so here are God's people stuck between the water and the warriors stuck between the army and the ocean. And God used Moses again to open up that water of the Red Sea. God's people passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. And when Pharaoh came, he said, we're following them. So they followed. And that's when God closed up the water. And they got swallowed. And, you know, maybe there's a lesson there. You come against God's people. You follow them the wrong way. God's going to swallow you up. Because that's what happened to Pharaoh. And then God led his people and this story is way more complex than what I'm making it, but really the simple story is then God eventually led his people to a land he had promised them. A land of provision. A land of beauty. A land of bounty. A land of blessing. And then it was there to possess that land that we find a theme that recurs throughout the Old Testament. And so here we have Jesus promising inheritance of land. But he wasn't just speaking of an earthly land like what they had known before. No, the whole story of what Jesus is doing on this moment is a grander picture of what they'd previously experienced. In fact, we can't fully understand the Sermon on the Mount without understanding some of what had happened in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. I encourage you to read through the book of Exodus. I encourage you to read the story of them making their way from Egypt to the promised land. Because in that we encounter Moses going up on a mountain by himself and interacting with God and receiving the Ten Commandments and offering those commands to God's people. And God's people then saying, okay, we need to live according to these commands. And it was the giving of the law. And here you have Jesus, the greater Moses, up on a mountain. It's really more of a hill, but we'll call it a mountain to be kind. He was up on the hillside, up on the mountain, but he had invited all the people up there with him. And it wasn't just one person speaking to God, this was God himself speaking to all the people and telling them that it's not just about obeying the law, it's really about a change of heart and having a relationship with your God. Inviting people into a kingdom lifestyle to be kingdom children. That's the story of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Jesus is doing. And it echoes the Old Testament, it echoes the Exodus through and through and through. And so when he promises land, We get a glimpse of what we see in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, there's a picture that at the end of time, there will be a new heaven and a new earth that descend for us. Revelation chapter 21. A new heaven and a new land. A whole new kingdom land for God's people. And we see the the glimpse of that in what Jesus is saying. So what a magnificent blessing. People who have nothing, who have no land, who've had their land taken from them, you get to inherit kingdom land from the king. He's going to give you the best land there is. But did you catch who the promise is for? Did you catch who the blessing is for? Blessed are the meek, he says, for they will inherit the earth. Now, depending on which translation of the Bible you read, this may say earth. I think a more accurate translation is land. That's more in keeping with what we see throughout the scriptures. They will inherit the land. But did you see who's going to inherit it? The meek ones. The meek. Wait. The meek? They are going to receive the reward? I mean, where does meekness get you in this world? We know that the powerful, the bold, the takers, the rich, the mighty, the power hungry, the power brokers the power dealers of our world, the ones who have the money, they get to buy and sell us. They get to buy and sell what they want. They can purchase the land for themselves. Meekness doesn't win us much in this world. Blessed are the meek? Really, Jesus? I mean, come on, bro. Have you not heard that might makes right? That there's only so much to go around, so you got to get what you can take. Then it's survival of the fittest, and the fittest are the ones who dominate. So you got to dominate the others to get what you want. There's only so much. If you want it, you take it. That's the way it is. I mean, listen, Jesus, we live in the age of hostile takeovers and high-powered consultants and propaganda where memes are made to weaponize words to spin the opinion of the people. Meekness, if you want success, meekness ain't going to get you there. And in the face of all of that, Jesus simply offers this, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. It's so backwards to the way this world works. Jesus offers an invitation to embrace a radically different kind of way of living. To embrace a totally different way of life. To embrace a different approach to life, a way of approaching ourselves and others differently than we have. It's an invitation to trade our never-ceasing striving for more, to trade in that competition and replace it with cooperation, to see other people not as our opponents or rivals but as fellow travelers and strugglers on the journey. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the land. Now this word meekness, depending on what translation of the Bible you read, may be translated gentleness. And that's not wrong. I just don't think that's as complete. Meekness is a difficult word sometimes to understand. We better understand meekness this way, that it is gentleness with humility. Sometimes the word from the Greek, the original language the New Testament was written in, it's translated either as gentleness or humility. I think we do better to translate it as meekness, which is the combination of gentleness and humility. To really understand the fullness of meekness, we do need to understand some things that meekness is not. Like for starters, meekness is not just a character trait that some people possess and others don't. Depending on how you're wired, depending on your personality, your temperament, meekness may come easier for you. If you're like my wife, you're one of those few people. And and she's not perfectly meek, but meekness comes easier for Jen. Not so much for me. (laughs) So if you are anything like me, I'm just going to confess to you, like meekness works against my personality, I better say it this way. My personality, my temperament works against meekness. It does not come as easy for me. I, I'm more bold. I'm more like, hey, let's take it. Like, hey, there's a hill. Let's charge it. Let's go. Jen is calmer, gentler, sweeter, much more pleasant. <laughs> but saying that, if you're anything like me, I invite you into the journey to allow the Holy Spirit to shape us. Because that's what we identify. It's not that, well, some people possess this because of the personality. Others don't. So we we just get a pass on this. Saying that that's not the way we're wired up, that's not an excuse. That's just an identification of an area where we need to allow God to retool some wiring within us. To say, well, it's just the way I am means, great, that's the way you are. God desires you to be different, so let him get you there. Meekness may not come as easily for you, but that doesn't mean you don't need to allow the Spirit to shape you and grow you and change you and develop you. So welcome to the journey of becoming meek. Uh, Another thing that I think people confuse about meekness is that sometimes they define meekness as weakness. But that's just not accurate. In fact, meekness is not weakness. We'd better define it this way. A better definition is meekness is strength under restraint strength restraint that you have the power that you have strength that you just are not leveraging it for your own good that was joe joe displayed this joe sat quietly by himself towards the back of the bus it was detroit in the 1930s and joe was just trying to get across town the bus stopped and three young white guys got on board They noticed Joe, a black man, sitting by himself towards the back of the bus. And so they began to tease and mock and harass him for the color of his skin. Something Joe had zero control over. But Joe did not retaliate. He just sat there quietly and soaked in the insults. His silence only infuriated these young men even more. So they amped up the insults, harassed him more, began making more pointed statements at him. Joe continued to sit in silence. Instead of lashing out, speaking out, reacting, he just clutched his weapons. As the insults continued, he clutched his weapons tighter, hoping not to use them. He really didn't want to unleash them. He knew unleashing those weapons would be the end of those boys. So he was just hoping he didn't have to use them. Not here, not now, not on this bus, not with these boys. But those boys, they just continued to hurl the insults. And while they made no physical altercation, make no mistake, they were picking a fight with this guy. Well, eventually it came to an end because the bus came to a stop. It was Joe's destination. He stood up from his seat at the back of the bus, and that's when the boys realized that he was much larger and more intimidating, a much more imposing figure than they had originally assessed. Joe reached his hand into his pocket As he approached the boys, as he got close, he pulled his weapon from his pocket along with a business card, handed the business card to one of the boys and just continued to walk on his way, smiling slyly as he exited the bus and entered a building nearby. Well, as Joe left the bus, the three young men huddled around to see what that business card said, which was simply, Joe Lewis, boxer. Boxer. His weapons were his fists. These young boys had unknowingly been picking a fight with the man who would soon become the heavyweight boxing champion of the world from 1937 to 1949. Joe Lewis, the number one boxer of all time according to the International Boxing Boxing Research Organization, though a certain local boxer Didn't like that assessment. They ranked him only as number two. Sorry, Mr. Ali. (laughs) Joe beat you out. Joe Lewis, a man of immense power and stature of skill, capable of defending himself and ending the argument with one powerful, devastating blow. Chose not to use that as his means of defending himself that day. He chose not to retaliate, chose not to exact revenge. Now, he reserved his power, saved it for the ring. His meekness, his strength restrained was a gift to those boys that day. He restrained his strength and in doing so left their jaws intact and left them the ability to tell all their boys the story of the day they shared right across town. With the champ, Joe Lewis. Strength restrained. That's meekness. Friend, let's be sure of this. That meekness ain't weakness. In fact, say that with me. Let's make sure we understand this. Meekness ain't weakness. Let's say it one more time. But this time, like you've got some strength, some power. But you're choosing to restrain it. Let's say it again. Meekness ain't weakness. You get it. That's great. Now, we will see that displayed in several people throughout history, but you'll never see it displayed more powerfully than in Jesus. Jesus said of himself in speaking to his followers and to the crowd one day, he offered, I am humble or meek, it's that same Greek word, I am meek and gentle at heart. I am meek and gentle at heart friend, make no mistake, Jesus was meek, but he ain't weak. When Jesus was put on that mockery of a trial, oh, he had the strength to rebut every statement that came his way, but he chose to stand in silence and receive it. When those Roman guards stripped his clothes, whipped his back, punched his face, shoved the thorny crown on his brow, when they nailed his wrists and his feet to the cross and hurt hoisted the cross into the air, when the crowd hurled their insults at him, Jesus could have could have responded by calling down all the armies of heaven, all the angel armies to his defense. He could have stepped down from that cross and wielded some serious power. He could have called down a firestorm and wiped all those wicked people from the face of the earth. Instead, he chose to be the sacrificial lamb to, to restrain his power and use it not for his gain, but for ours. Instead, he chose to fight a different battle. Make no mistake, he is not weak. He has the power, the strength to rise in glorious resurrection from the grave. To defeat death, to defeat Satan, to defeat all the powers of hell. To win over the grave and then to step back to his rightful place. As the king of kings for all eternity in heaven. Jesus ain't weak, friends. Make no mistake, he chose to be the sacrificial lamb. But that lamb is also the roaring lion, and there will come a day when he returns. And that time, his meekness will not be on display, but his power will. And we better be ready. We better make sure we side with the right guy for that final day. Jesus... Showed us what meekness looks like. In Jesus, we see that meekness curbs the urge to avenge and revenge ourselves. Meekness chooses not to depend on our own strength in the moment, but rather to depend on God. And what we see is that meekness refrains from retaliation. It refuses revenge because it trusts God to be our defender. It's scary. It's hard. This doesn't come natural for most of us. If you are anything like me, and I know at least a few of you are, retaliation is our natural inclination. People toss the insults. We hear what they have said, not to our face, but it comes from behind the back. We read it on a post on social media. We hear it through the grapevine. Those things come from different angles. And our natural inclination is to fight back. Oh, I can put that person in their place. Oh, I've got the great comeback. Oh, man, I can put you in your place. Let's do this. But we know, we know that that's our pride. And while we might feel good in the moment, that moment is over pretty quickly. We might win the argument, but the reality is, and we all know this, you get into the ring where they're throwing mud, nobody comes out clean You go wrestle the pigs, and you come out dirty yourself. That's just not the way that wins. And that's not the way of Jesus. Again, this is an area that I need to grow in. So I invite you to grow with me. And what this means is that people might say things, they might even do things, and we will choose to not say anything in return. See, meekness submits its power to God, trusting in God. Meekness is only found when we have a deep trust in who God is as our defender, in his goodness, and his graciousness, and what he has said will happen at the end. Meekness effectually says, I I trust that God will prove powerful in the end so I don't have to prove my power or my might in this moment. I, I trust what God will do so I don't have to prove myself right to you. Now, That's only if we've actually aligned ourselves with God that that makes sense, right? Remember that Jesus was speaking to the down and outers in his society. To the people who were under the oppression of the Roman rulers. Who were under the control and dominance of the religious elite. And it was to them that Jesus said, don't fight back. Retaliation is not going to win you what you want. Don't choose violence. It was to them that Jesus said, God's got you. Stay the course. Choose meekness. I mean, these were people who were hoping for a political savior, not just a spiritual savior. These were people who were hoping for a leader to rise up and lead a rebellion with a sword. Not a Messiah who would climb upon a cross. And Jesus said, meekness is the way. See, meekness... Refuses to inflate the self for selfish gain. It always submits itself for the greater good of God and other people. It's the opposite of pride. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to prove my strength. I don't have to prove myself right. I can just love you. I mean, that's the reason. If we know that God loves us and that God will defend us and God's got us, and that means we can focus our attention, our energy, our efforts on loving God and loving people. Uh, It's the beauty of the kingdom community Jesus has invited us to that he's creating. A place where we don't have to defend ourselves, but with everyone else looking out for one another. I, I mean, after all, if you have to always look out for number one, there's only one of you looking out for you. But if you look out for others and they do the same, what a beautiful thing. We've all got each other's backs. What the What a genius community God has created for us. And the currency of that community, the currency of the kingdom, is love. It's love. I mean, love is the currency of God's kingdom. But that's scary, isn't it? Because love always brings the opportunity to be taken advantage of. Anyone who's ever really loved another person, you know this. I mean, every spouse knows the more deeply you love your other, the more you feel the wound when they say something snarky to you. Every parent knows the more deeply you love your child, the more you feel the pain when they hit those teen or pre-teen years and begin to talk back. Kids, we love you, but know that sometimes you're a challenge. <laughs> you feel it. You, you feel the pain. You feel that the love is being taken advantage of. When the door slams shut, you feel it. It doesn't mean we end it. it just means we know that love brings the distinct possibility of being taken advantage of. And it eliminates our need to retaliate. We see that most clearly in the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And what did we do? We crucified him. Yeah, love risks being taken advantage of. And that's exactly the cross-shaped life that Jesus invites us to. To love God and to love others deeply. Now, the one place you will never be taken advantage of in love is with God. That's the truly only safe place to love. But God risks. Because he knows we'll want to take advantage of his grace. We'll want to take advantage of his mercy. We'll want to spend his truth for our own gains. And that just ain't a good way. But we know. We know that meekness is the Jesus way. That in the kingdom of God, Jesus is far more interested in our meekonomics than our economics. You saw what I did there. (laughs) He's interested in our meekness, in our heart more than our pockets. Now that doesn't mean that those other things don't matter. It just means that he's most interested in the heart. See meekness does exercise a certain element of power but it always does so for the benefit of other people out of love for others. Meekness does defend. We see this with the cross. Jesus chose to defend the helpless with the cross even at his own disadvantage. Jesus Gave scathing statements against the self-righteous who were exerting control and dominance over other people. He was defending others. Meekness defends others in the face of abuse or injustice, even stepping into harm's way to protect another person. Meekness puts pride to death and steps up to serve somebody else to help them out. Now, I want to be really clear about this because some people can confuse meekness and think it means that it's okay For us to just always take it on the chin with abuse. Meekness is not abuse. Meekness is not a willingness to be a punching bag or a doormat for another person. So if you're in that kind of relationship and you're receiving any kind of emotional or physical or relational abuse or otherwise, get out and get help. And we're here. We are here to help you, and we're not the final help destination, but we'll walk beside you in the journey to help you get the help you need from the people who can help you most. Meekness is not abuse, and abuse is not okay anywhere, and certainly not in God's kingdom. But meekness does say that it's really not about our self-depreciation either, Meekness is not about us looking lowly on ourselves. In fact, it's really not about self at all. Meekness gets beyond the self to look at other people. We we saw earlier that meekness is the combination of gentleness and humility. So humility is a close cousin of meekness. It's an essential ingredient in meekness. We need to understand a little bit about humility to fully understand meekness. And doing so, I think it's helpful for us to know that a lot of people, I think they misunderstand humility. Like humility is talking poorly of ourselves, and it's not. Like, like humility does not mean you think less of yourself. It just means you think of yourself less often. In fact, friend, God thinks pretty highly of you. The cross of Jesus Christ demonstrates that. It demonstrates your value and your worth to the King of Kings, to the one who created you, the one who owns the world, thinks the world of you. So don't go thinking less of yourself. That's not humility. That that's a broken image that needs restored by the king of the kingdom. But nor does it mean you go elevate yourself above other people. No, that's not it. Humility just means we don't think of ourselves as often. See, humility takes the focus off of self and shines the light on somebody else. Humility stops looking at our own situation and looks instead for ways we can serve other people and help them in their situations. Humility is not about how we see ourselves. It is all about helping other people feel seen and heard and loved and valued. That's meekness, my friend. That's what God is calling us to. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Later in his ministry, Jesus offered this invitation to all who were following. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. I am meek, he says. And in me you'll find rest for your souls. Next slide. He goes on, says, For my yoke is easy, and the burden I give you it's light. Friend, meekness is the Jesus way. It's an invitation to stop the ceaseless striving for power in our culture. It's an invitation to find our place in the kingdom. To hit pause on the exhaustion button of the rat race. To stop the cutthroat competition and the ongoing angling for success to get ahead. I love the invitation of Jesus, come and find your rest in me. Find your place in my kingdom, is what he says. And know that when you find your place there, you find what you've always been looking for. Don't you love that Jesus says we will inherit the kingdom? Is there anything you can do to earn an inheritance? To deserve an inheritance? No. In fact, in the culture Jesus was speaking to, you simply received an inheritance because you were the child of the dad. And the dad had something to bestow upon you. Now, it's funny. um, I've had a lot of people tell me over the years that although I'm a bit taller and a little more slender than my father was. If you look at our faces, I bear some distinct Fitzgibbon resemblance. In fact, there's some Fitz traits that every Fitz guy has. And some of those go beyond the physical to other mannerisms. Things that I remember my dad saying and doing and just simple ways of how my dad would huff at some things (laughs) when he was working out in the garage. And here I am in my 40s, and I find myself doing that. I mean, there are moments when I'm like, oh my goodness, I am my dad. Kids, whether you like it or not, there are things that you are going to say, man, I hope I'm like my parents that way. That's really good. Lean into that. There are going to be things, though, that all of us, because every person here is imperfect. There's going to be things you look at at parents and saying, man, I hope I never do it. You're going to do it. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> it's going to be in you. And there's some of those things that are tainted by sin that I need to allow God to redeem And some of those things I've allowed God to redeem over the years. But there's some things that are just kind of a fun reminder that, yeah, in my personality and in my physicality, I look like my dad. Friend, I hope that every one of us here can say that we look like our father, that we look like our dad. Meekness is not the only characteristic of our heavenly father but it sure seems a pretty good place to start. Do you live in such a way that other people would look at you and say, oh, that's a child of the king. Oh, that's a kingdom kid. Oh, they they look like their daddy. I hope so. Let's all determine, as we continue in this series, to put ourselves up against what our dad looks like. To allow the Holy Spirit to shape us so that we might better resemble Him. And, friend, if you have not joined the family yet, God offers an open invitation to everyone to become His child. Jesus simply says, Come to me. Come to me, all. What an inclusive statement. No one's left out in that. Because I know we are all weary. We all carry heavy burdens. That's what this world does to us. If you have never taken Jesus at that invitation before, I hope today will be your day. I hope you'll come to him and that you'll find your place in his kingdom, not only now, but forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are not just king and Lord. Not only are you savior and friend, God, you are dad, you are father. When we confess that too often we we do things that don't bring honor to your name, that would disgrace the family, that we do things that don't look like you at all. But it's our hope, it's our prayer in this moment that we would be good representatives of your image in this world. God, that we would look more and more and more like you. So Holy Spirit, we invite you and we need you to do some shaping, transforming work in us, to transform us into the image of our Savior, the meek one, Jesus. The most powerful one ever who chose to exert his power for our good. Oh, God, may we live that way. May we follow you faithfully. And for those who don't yet know you, we pray that today would be their day, that they would allow nothing to stand in the way of coming to you, to find the rest, to find their place in your kingdom as your child. And God, we pray this for your glory. Amen.